Hello, dear listeners. This is your host, Oshaye. Thank you so much for all of your support thus far. This podcast has grown so much in just a few short months. We are absolutely awed and humbled at the response, and it is always a delight to read from you about the impact we are having. Please do keep them coming. And now, we are down to the last two guests for our first season. As we prepare to wrap up the season, I have a favor to ask. Would like your feedback to help us in our plans for the second season. What did you like? What didn't you like? What would you like us to start doing, stop doing, or even continue doing? To get your responses, we've created a simple form. Please check the show notes of this episode for the link and our social media pages at Origins AF on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can simply type bit.ly, B for banana, I for interview, C for tangerine, bit.ly slash origins Africa podcast feedback. Origins is with an S. So bit.ly slash origins Africa podcast feedback right now to access the form. We are also considering starting a newsletter which would include the transcripts of each episode and perhaps also three things I learned from each guest interview. If it's something you'd like, please let us know on the same feedback form and also share your thoughts with us on some of the things you'd like us to consider for the newsletter or any other ideas generally. I look forward to receiving your responses. The link again is bit.ly slash origins Africa podcast feedback. Thank you once again for staying on this ride with us. Enjoy. I left Ilori with a single-minded focus at the Gulagos. <laughs> I remember that it was late. It was raining. I symbolically actually say, hey, guys, see you. I'll see you later. Almost like just saying, guys, hey, I'm going for my dreams. Yeah? That's how I came to Lagos on my own. The only thing I came with were my credentials and my dreams. My father told me life is not a bit this is Origins Africa podcast where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true, asking the what, the when, the how, and the why. I'm Oshaye, and on the first episode of our chat with Yemi Fashion, a senior human resources executive and the current head of HR at Globalcom Nigeria, we explore Yemi's early years, his desire to be successful, driven by a great fear of failure and his journey to Lagos in pursuit of his dreams. Yemi Fashion, YF as he's fondly called, is a senior human resources executive with over 20 years experience across the banking, telecommunication, and management consultant sectors. He has actually led a nomadic career life and is on his 11th job. He is currently the head of HR at Globalcom Nigeria, a telecommunications firm. In fact, at the time we conducted this interview, Yemi was still going through his onboarding phase at Globalcom. Today, YF occupies a number of leadership roles across various HR professional networks and is an elected leadership council member at the Chartered Institute of Personnel Management of Nigeria. He has also received several awards for his excellent contribution to human capital development in Nigeria. Curiously, YF didn't deliberately set out to be an HR practitioner. In fact, growing up, Yemi didn't have any particular career in mind. He, however, knew that he didn't want to be a teacher like his mom. All Yemi wanted was to be successful. All I wanted to do was just be, just get to the corporate world and be successful. 
that was my driving force. So if anybody asked me when I was in school, even when I was at the university, what do you want to become? Honestly, I'll just say, just to be successful. My my focus was on the future. Again, my dad used to buy Daily Times a lot in those years. And every time when he was done with reading, I'll pick it up and guess what I was always looking at? Vacancies in the newspapers. Just looking through the qualification, things required to be able to get jobs and be successful. That was my focus. So I was always reading those vacancies and thinking, okay, yeah, when I when I touch a young be a age someday. <laughs> Yeah, before I go into the university. Before I go into the university. Absolutely before I go into the university. I was always reading the newspapers. My father, the Daily Times newspaper my, my dad bought. And my concentration, I, I can't remember reading any other thing except vacancies. I was just fixated upon being successful in the corporate world. I didn't want to be a teacher like my mom because I didn't I didn't think I didn't think teaching paid the bills. You know what I mean? So I just didn't want to be a teacher. So concentration was get out, do well, and then go find go find your own level in the corporate world. So yes, no particular career goal in mind at all, not in any way. I would be lying if I said to anybody, I wanted to be an HR person or doctor or lawyer. No, I only wanted to be successful in whatever I found myself doing. Yemi's desire to be successful was driven by a great fear of failure growing up. But what triggered this fear? Like I said, I mean, I didn't grow up in a in an environment where we had everything. It was it was prompted by the fact that oh, we didn't have everything we wanted at home, and I didn't want that to continue. We didn't have. I mean, there were times we didn't have enough. There were times we didn't have at all. Reality. So. I just wanted to, how do I put it now? I just wanted to not continue in that cycle. And I thought, yes, being successful was going to help at least to deliver more to myself and ultimately to the family that um, I'll be bringing up as well. So there was okay. that huge fear of you've got, to, you've got to do well. You've got to do better. You've got to be successful. That has been my driving force, my driving passion, in addition to, yes, the grace of God, which has always, always, always been fundamental for me. Yemi still has this fear till this day, even with all the achievements recorded. Still today, fear of failure. He hasn't gone. Mm. <laughs> even with all the successes you've recorded. I haven't recorded any success. I'm still on a journey. I'm not anywhere yet. The journey is so, so, so far ahead. So, so, so far ahead. Sincerely, so, so far ahead. I haven't, I haven't, I'm not, I have never seen myself as successful. I am not by any stretch of imagination a successful person. I am still on a journey. What and success I say that with, to you? With, what success, okay, so success to me is multidimensional. Mm-hmm. So there is success in career, there is success um, from the family perspective, there is success from the religious perspective as well, the social perspective, there is success. Parenthood, in fact, how I classify um, my relationship with my family, especially the kids, is to say that it's a divine responsibility. So I can't be successful in career and then I'll be failing at the home front. So it's multidimensional. I think it was Stephen Covey who said that success is like juggling five to seven balls at the same time. And guess what? Those balls are all made of glass. If one of them drops to the ground, what happens? It shatters. So you can see that it's a balancing, it's a daily balancing act to be successful. I don't even know how anybody can say that he or she is successful yet. Not me. No. The journey is still a lot far ahead of me. What helps you in juggling these seven different glass balls? How, you, how are you able ah. to maintain some form of balance? Remember when we, when we started this conversation, we started from the grounding yes. at the home front. Yes. When I was growing up. I think that, that, has, that has helped greatly. Um, not, not deviating <laughs> too much from the foundation has really, really helped. If one recognizes that at the core, 
of everything we want to do or achieve is God. And the way I have um, defined God, G-O-D, is to say grace on duty. I, I accept, I realize in my entire being and totality that nothing I have become or becoming or will become is outside of the grace of God, G-O-D, grace on duty. Nothing at all. Once we come to that realization that, hey, it's not of you because you are running or it's not because of you because you are smart, not because of you because you are swift, that everything is predicated on grace, then it makes, it probably just makes things a bit easier. So at times we win and celebrate. At times we lose and we go through the motions. And then at times life is just a draw. But in all instances, we keep taking the learnings with us. In Yemi's words, he grew up in a harsh, narrow, controlled Christian way. Um, By that, I mean, being an only son, my mom did not spare me the rod. She was a teacher, retired as a teacher, and a great disciplinarian, and also a very strong uh, spiritual grounding. And she made sure that, yeah, I mean, you know that this um, phrase in the Bible, spare the rod and spoil the child. Despite being her only son, she did not spare the rod so that um, I was in sport. So really, it was within that controlled framework that I grew up as a young guy. My, my, my existence was rolled around three, three areas, church, school, family. So it was always around go to school Monday to Friday, midweek service, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then go to vigil on Friday, Sunday, church in the morning, church in the evening, and then the cycle continued again. So on a number of occasions, I remember that my mom woke me up in the morning with a cane because of something I did wrong or didn't do well um, the previous night. So it was, it, was a, it was a harsh, narrow Christian way kind of going up for me. Okay, okay. And how about your dad? My dad is dead now, uh, passed on about 22 years ago, exactly a month after my wedding and that was also the day Abiola died so um, my dad's influence was there as well but I think his influence was more from the spiritual perspective Um, I I can't remember any day that my dad did not wake up at about 3 in the morning and praying till about 5 almost like every day unless he wasn't feeling well or, or he was ill or something every day so yes I could say that he held the spiritual side of things when my mom was dealing with the domestic and bringing up the kids' size and all that. Yemi's mom had the greater influence on him. My mom was not just a teacher, but also an educationist. And she drummed those, um, those nuggets into my ears every time. You want to be what you want to be, then you've got to work for it with the foundation on God. And um, I, I do say grace only, hashtag grace only. It's not because I picked up those words or the phrase recently. It's something that's been with me since, since forever. The foundation of everything I want to be, I want to do, I want to go become has always been God. And that was influenced from my mom. And also in terms of doing well, she, she, was, she, was, she was bent on me turning out well. Um, at some point, I was almost derailing <laughs> from doing well, so to speak, because of my love for soccer. But my mom would not allow me. She you wanted to be a footballer? Um, I didn't want to think I wanted to be a footballer. I didn't think so. I just enjoyed playing the round leather game. I just enjoyed it. <laughs> Honestly, okay. I mean, I was... I, I was I was a standing five, a defender, because maybe because of my height and all that. When I was in primary school, I was a goalkeeper. I think I was a goalkeeper for the school. When I was in primary school, I went to school in Ibadan, primary school, Victory Primary School, Okado Ibadan. Um, goalkeeper, and then I, at some point, I became a striker. I loved scoring goals and I loved dribbling. After a while, I sent into a standing five. I mean, when we played sets, what we call sets in those years, 
as young guys, right? Anytime we were about to choose players for the set, I mean, if they don't call me first, they will call me second. That was how strong and say, my love for football. I'm not kidding you, brother. I'm not kidding you. That was how strong my love for football was. And it, at some point, it began to um, conflict with what I should be doing academically. But like I said, my mom would not allow me. She wouldn't allow me. She just made sure I stayed on the right path throughout the journey of um, my academics. Interestingly, Yemi's love for football heralded his first encounter with failure. I considered myself as brilliant. People considered me as brilliant, primary school into secondary school. So maybe that also got into me in addition to my love for soccer. So, I mean, I was in my top five in class up till the time I was doing my school certificate at Leola College. But you remember those days when we did WIAC? I'm not sure if you witnessed the same thing, um, Chair, but we would do part one of a particular subject in the morning. We'll take a break and do part two, maybe in the afternoon. I'm not sure. Yes, yes, yes. I I also did that. I don't know if it's the same thing now as well. There you go. So, you know what Yemi Fashion did between the time of break, end of part, part one? And start of part two. Are you serious? You're playing football. I'm not joking. I am not kidding you. So I was that brilliant, according to even what my colleagues of 37 years ago, 37, 42 years ago, could say about me today. So I I had that belief that I mean, Zenos, they said exams we have been passing and all that and all that. Between part one and part two, when guys were reading and all that, fashion we playing soccer. By the time results were out, guess what? I had only four credits. My first experience of failure, real life failure, it stared me in the face, reality. And I, that couldn't take me anywhere. I couldn't go to the poly, I couldn't go to the university, and all that. Again, thank God for the love of the mother. My mom made sure that with that result, after all the um, words of disappointment and all that and all that, she found she found a way to enroll me to do A-levels at Government College. And that was my saving grace. Failing was a saving grace. Going to A-levels was, if I could use the word, preordained. Sincerely, because if I had managed to have my normal five credits or, or, or whatever in school, I wouldn't have learned anything. But God made me fail quickly, early, so I could learn. And honestly, looking back and connecting the dots of life backwards, I am absolutely grateful for that experience. So how was A-Levels experience up until you got to the university? So now, government college, A-levels, and it was there that I started to learn to be sober about academics gradually. Not that I stopped playing football, I won't lie to you, but at least I was taking things a bit more serious. At, um, during A-levels, I, I, I could sit down to read because it was, a, it was quite advanced. I mean, brother, this was me who struggled through O-levels to make my school start and now A-levels, but at least some, some sort of... Um, there's some sort of seriousness to my approach to my academics. But guess what? By the time I was writing my A-levels, I was still writing my O-levels. Remember, I had four credits. Yes. So I was writing O-level, but I wasn't still making more than four credits. If I combine two papers, I still didn't have more than four credits. Still couldn't get me to university. So lower six, upper six, by the time I finished upper six, Number one, I didn't still have enough credits to go to the university, and I didn't have enough units, A-level units, to start direct entry. So after A-levels, I was at home. I stayed at home for one full year. And guess what I did? That was the time I now concentrated fully on my O-levels. I learned how to go to the library at Dubai in Ibadan to sit in the library to read for an exam. I learned how to take a subject that we did not take at Loyola College, Commerce. I took it on my own, got the textbooks, read it on my own, and I made an A2. 
when I didn't have enough O-level to go ahead or enough A-level credits to go ahead. That was a defining moment. If I had missed it that year, I'm not sure exactly how things would have turned out. But that's why I said, thank God for those moments because I failed quickly, learned quickly, failed forward, and then I went back on track. So it was after then I had enough credits. I think maybe about seven now, enough credits if I, if I combined the two papers and I was able to also make my jump and I went to to reading. Bearing in mind that Yemi's single goal was to be successful, how did he settle on studying English language at the university? I mean, it was becoming difficult. I wanted to do business at me at some point, but I struggled a bit with mathematics. In fact, it was only that year, that same year that I did, um, that I settled at home to read by myself, that I eventually made a credit in mathematics. It was always P7, P8, or F9, <laughs> right? But the year that I settled down, the same year that I made my commerce on my own, was the same year I settled to write mathematics and I made it. So I wanted to do, but I was like, my mathematics wasn't strong enough for business admin and economics and all that. And yes, my communication skills were already noticed or noticeable at that time. People actually were already telling me at that time ah, that I speak very well. You know what I mean? So from that perspective, it just occurred to me that, okay, if I can't go do um, um, business me or economics or accounting, those are the things that were very popular in the vacancies of newspapers in those years. Believe me, accounting, business me, economics. But because my mathematics wasn't strong, well, I settled for English. And I mean, my job score wasn't that bad. I think I scored 259, actually to study English in effect, 259. So that was that was really what prompted me to settle for English because my mathematics wasn't that strong. Did you have any guidance or it was something you decided on by yourself? Never, never had a career guidance. Never had a career. The, the only thing I might say was that the, the, I had these cousins that were very close to me. Uh, the only way is they were first cousins. They are first cousins. And we're all growing up together from the oldest to the youngest. We're almost like within the same kind of age range. And as they were leaving secondary school, they were going to university one after the other. You know what I mean? So it was a, it was almost a, what's what I'm looking for now? A motivation kind of that I also need to do well or I needed to do well at that time. So that was some sort of motivation, but there was no engagement, no communication with anyone at any point at uh, any point in time to say, let's guide you from a career, career perspective. Not at all. What of your I mean, mom? Um, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something about my mom from a career perspective. So when I finished, <laughs> when I finished in Ife, I went to do my youth service in Illinois. And I think I went. For, I mean, of course, it was a year. Um, by the time I was done, when I got home, my mom had gone to pick up application forms into two commissions in Oyo State, the Teaching Service Commission and the Civil Service Commission. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not joking. I mean, the day I get home, the day I speak with her again, I'll remind her this story. She picked up those two forms as soon as I got home, she just gave them to me. Um, she said, till today, I didn't feel my name on any of those forms. I just looked at the forms and I said, thank you, mom, but that was it. I didn't even feel my name. As in the number one thing to feel, I did not bother because I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, 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 just, I just said, mommy, no, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm not working with any commission, teaching service commission, civil service, no, 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 no. I mean, that was a, that was a genuine, very genuine and um, interested, focused concern for a child or for a son, right? But it just didn't match the things that were in my mind about the future for myself, don't forget that I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Yes. But I wanted yes. to do it. I wanted to go into the corporate world. Teaching Service Commission and Civil Service Commission in Oyo State both did not match the plans 
of the future for myself. And I did not bother to fill the forms. So to that extent, some influence about, yeah, I'm thinking about you, son. You need to do well. That was there. But it didn't match my aspirations for myself. Okay. Okay. So you settled on English and then you got into the university. How was the experience? Did you lose interest? Was it something you found interesting? I know in 200 level, you wanted to, you mentioned you wanted to switch to law. Yeah. So it was interesting. But the interesting part of it was this. Because I had failed, actually, that failure prompted me, propelled me a lot towards being successful in effect. That's the truth. If I hadn't failed, like I said, I probably would have gone to university at a younger age, maybe with average grades, and then I would have gone to, to play, to continue my soccer moments, if you know what I mean. But because I failed, I'd done A-levels, I knew what it was to do A-levels and stay at home for one year when your mates were already in year three was when you were going to year one. I wasn't going to take it um, lightly on myself. Before I started lectures, some one or two of those my cousins that I mentioned, the always, they already had the um, school handbook at home. I was in their house and if they were waiting to resume, I lay my hands on the school handbook and I chewed it from cover to cover. I remember it's, uh, it was a this was in 1986. Now I remember it was a green, green, uh, green color cover. I chewed it. And before I started lecture, before I started registration, before I started anything in effect, I knew exactly how to calculate my GPA. I'm not kidding. I knew how many courses I needed to do per semester, the units of the courses, and the grades that I needed to make to make a first class, to make it two one, to make it two two. In, during those years, first class started from four point five. Two one started from three point five, below three point five was two two up to I think uh, one point five or so, but I stayed my mind on not below a first class. I just wanted to make a first class because you remember I had lost time. Yeah. So yeah. this wasn't going to be a time to play. So I I read the handbook cover to cover, I knew how to calculate my GPA before I started lectures. So, part one, I had four A's and a B plus. First semester. Second semester, part one, I had four A's and a B. So I was comfortably on a first class track. And that might be one of the reasons why I wasn't allowed to change the law by my department, because their departments don't tend to release their best students. Remember, Oh, okay. Um, okay. So not nothing. Um, it wasn't because I didn't know anyone, or because it was um, was what I'm looking for. It was done intentionally. No, it was just because I didn't want to release one of their best students. So I couldn't change law <clears throat> because I couldn't change law. I remember that before I even did A levels or while doing A levels, I was looking at looking through newspapers, and I was already seeing vacancies. And guess yeah. what? At that time, for almost every managerial position, you will see it clearly. First degree in the social sciences or the humanities, an MBA would be another advantage. Always, always, an MBA would be an added advantage. I would, I just, it just stayed with me. That this MBA, I must do it. So when I couldn't change law in part two, I just settled to go do MBA. And that was in 1987. I settled in my mind that the future for me was going to be to do an MBA. So I left the disappointment of not changing to law behind me, and I faced my English. Ultimately, I didn't make a first class. I made a two-one, but okay. um, yeah, I made a two-one, and that that really really helped. It helped in terms of the opportunities that now came my way later. And like I said, I am grateful for the fact that I failed early, and I quickly learned my lessons. Remember that if there was one career Yemi was certain of not pursuing, it was teaching. Well, NYSE came and fate seemed to want to put Yemi's resolution to the test. What happened and what did Yemi do? Our words and our thoughts, they are like messages to the universe. 
the things that go through our minds in thoughts and also the words that come through our mouth, they are like messages we send out to the universe. And I am a firm believer in the fact that the universe takes those words and use them to manufacture or shape our reality. And then they get delivered to us ultimately. I went to, I was posted to Abuja for my NYSA. And um, I did, again, um, I was into football. I was into volleyball. I was into basketball. I was everywhere in camp in Abuja. I was really everywhere. So at the before the end of the orientation, this was orientation, before the end of it, the the government realized that there were too many youth coppers in Abuja, and Abuja did not have the facilities to accommodate all of them. So just about a week to the end of orientation, we were instructed to go ahead and change to any state of our choice in Nigeria. That was a blank check. Any state of, because it wasn't of our own making that we were in Abuja and there would be no space for us. The government allowed us, the directorate of NYC allowed us to change to any location of our choice in Nigeria. I picked up the form and because the, one of my cousins that I mentioned earlier was in Ogun State as a lecturer at um, College of Education. I feed Ogun State. So I can stay with him and do my NYC and all that. I didn't submit that form. I tore it. You know why I, you know why I tore it? No. Because I said to myself, no, you me, I mean, you are, you are popular in this camp. Everybody knows you. The platoon commanders. You play football, basketball, and all that, and all that. They'll post me to somewhere great in Abuja. I will stay in Abuja. Those oh, were my okay. thoughts. I'm telling you. So I did not feel the form eventually. I decided to stay back in Abuja. But fast forward to last day in camp, that moment where they hand you the uh, your deployment letter. I opened mine and I saw posting government girls day secondary school, Guagualada um, <laughs> role, English teacher. I want to die. <laughs> I wanted to die. <laughs> I was like, life offered me an opportunity to get out of this place. <laughs> to go to Lagos. Everybody was going to Lagos. I missed that opportunity. See what has happened to you, Yemi. Go and teach at Government Girls Secondary School, Bagwalada. I'm like, no ways. No ways. This is going to be like, my mom was a teacher. She did English and now I'm going to continue the tradition in the family. Mm-hmm. No ways, you know. So, you know what I did? It was now time for me to walk out my way out of Abuja myself. I remember that I had to go to NYC camp. I had to find my way to know somebody around so that I could walk my redeployment out of Abuja. I paid 40 Naira. I remember clearly. I paid my way through 40 Naira to be able to get that done. And ultimately, I was posted to Kwara State. So you settled that you're not going to take that teaching deployment? No, 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 no. I said, I, I was so sure in my mind that I wasn't going to. I was, it was an incontrovertible conviction in my mind that no, that, that teaching ain't for me. Right. Okay. So I found my way to Kwara State, traveled down to Ilori. Uh, the first place that I was posted to when I when I um, contacted NYC in Ilori was um, um Wali local government to be the PR, public relations officer. I got there, gave them my letter. They rejected me. They said they didn't have a space. It was, again, now my prerogative to look for where to do my NYC so that I'll get accepted. And then those guys will write NYC, and uh, if you know the process, yeah, I do. So, okay. That's how I strolled into the University of Illinois. I strolled into the English department, gave them my credentials, two one Ifair NYC. Ah, they've been looking for an English teacher, lecturer this time, so it's better than teacher. 
he's in the university. <laughs> you know? Okay. So I'm like, I mean, okay, you're going to be in the university environment lecturing as a copper. Not bad. Better than teacher um, at one government girl secondary school, blah, 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 blah. I settled for it. I settled for that role. And I did my NYC. I was teaching GNS to part one students as a copper. And then before the end of that year, the university offered me uh, part-time lecturing within the university. And that meant that I was not only teaching GNS to year one, I was also teaching year two. And I think year three at some point, some phonetics and phonemics and structure of English language. So that was good. I remember what I wanted to do because I, I couldn't do I couldn't do law. Remember what I wanted to do? An MBA, right? Yes. Where else would life have offered me that opportunity if not within a university environment? Did you see how things were orchestrated? Yeah. Like I said, when we have those thoughts and we speak those words, they are messages to the universe. The universe just takes them and uses them to frame our reality. Um, time went on. I didn't get that admission the year after I finished youth service, but I stayed behind because I was doing part-time lecturing. I was an idol, remember? And then in addition to that, I was teaching extramural to secondary school students who were writing exams. and all. So I was making some good money. I was coming from Milani to Alaba to come and buy hand sewing machine and I will um, take it back to Milani to sell. So it, was, it wasn't oh, bad. okay. Hand sewing machine. And so machine, it was just launched in 1994, 1992, 1993, about that year. It was, it was um, operated by batteries. You could use it for sewing small things, cottons and small tears and clothes and all that. And it was quite popular. And CNN was helping me because they were advertising it. So I was coming to Alaba here in Lagos. I'll go back to to sell. And I was making cool money. <laughs> And I was lecturing. And then, at some point, I got to... <laughs> I'm not sure if I should share this story to the world. I got friendly, and I was actually dating the niece of the coordinator of the MBA school. Do you think it was going to be easy for me <laughs> to get that admission or not? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to answer yourself. <laughs> it was easy peasy. I mean, not that I didn't have a qualification. It was highly competitive in those years. I, I must tell you, if a Unilag, UIMBA, very competitive. But because of my close affinity with the center of activity, Concerning my admission. I like how you put that. that <laughs> Close affinity well, with center. Center of activity concerning the admission. It was going to be easy. That was how I got the admission to read MBA. Chair, sincerely. I mean, it was in 1987 that I settled my mind to say I'll do an MBA because I couldn't do law. It was in 1992 that that dream or ambition was finally fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's why I say to young people, spend time in the future. Focus is important. Know exactly what you want out of life. It might not turn out exactly the way you, you wanted it. It might be different in another form or shape, but ultimately, ultimately, life answers to our focus and our dreams and ambitions and our thoughts as well. So we need to be careful of the things that are on our minds because, hey, eventually they always do come to pass. So that's the MBA story. Just to draw on that point a bit, so by focusing on the future, your experience, for instance, it wasn't that you have a whole picture. It wasn't like you had it all clarified out. You only knew the next step, the next point, which was getting the MBA, even though you weren't clear on what exactly you're going to do specifically with the MBA. Absolutely. I mean, okay. just about a couple of weeks ago, I did say that nothing great was ever achieved in its in a, in its in a perfect state. I, I mean, I have it on um, on Facebook somewhere. One of my posts about a week or two weeks ago. Nothing that we've achieved or nothing great was ever achieved 
in his perfect state. And I think it was Mark, uh, I think it was the Facebook guy, yeah, Mark, who said something around, don't wait until the idea is fully formed. Just start from somewhere. And the best place to start, if you ask me, is from the mind. Okay. The mind is man's fiercest battlefield. Most things that we can win in our minds, we might be able to win ultimately. But we just have to have an idea of exactly what we want to do. How it will pan out ultimately, we might not have the blueprint for it, but the universe will print it out ultimately for us. So Yemi finished his MBA, packed his bags, and traveled to Lagos to pursue his dreams. I remember the day I finished. <laughs> no, not the day I finished, the day I left it already. Um, If you are familiar with the highway between Ojo in Ibadan and Iwo Road, my house in Ibadan is somewhere along that expressway. But I left Ilori with a single-minded focus at the Good Lagos. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that it was late, it was raining, but I just moved past that house in Ibadan. I just faced Lagos. At some point, because it was late, I mean, there was a, there's a way you could actually, if it was during the day, you could see my house. If you're stretching in a car or a bus, you could see my house on the expressway. But I met, is it metaphorically or symbolically, actually said goodbye as I passed that point where I could see the house. But I couldn't say. <laughs> I symbolically actually say, hey, guys, see you. I'll see you later. Almost like just saying, guys, hey, I'm going for my dreams. Yeah? That's how I came to Lagos on my own. The only thing I came with were my credentials and my dreams. Nothing else. Nothing else. Of course, grace of God. I must, I must not always forget to say that. Grace of God. I just said, okay, this is it. Let's go. So, NBA done. It's time to go to that corporate world. Remember that uh, one had envisaged. In just a moment, we will explore what happened after Yemi arrived in Lagos in pursuit of his dreams. Stay with us. I'm Oshaye and you're listening to Origins Africa podcast. Hello, dear listener. As we prepare to wrap up this season, our very first, I have a favor to ask. Would like your feedback to help us in our plans for the next season. What did you like? What didn't you like? What would you like us to start doing? stop doing or even continue doing to get your response we've created a simple form please check the show notes of this episode for the link and our social media pages at origins af on twitter and instagram or you can simply type bit.ly slash origins africa podcast feedback right now to access the form bit b for bread I for interview and T for table. bit.ly slash Origins Africa podcast feedback. I look forward to receiving your response. Let's make a difference together, one origin story at a time. Thank you. Hi guys, welcome back to Origins Africa podcast. It took about two years for Yemi to complete the MBA program in between strikes and all. So, he finished in 1995 and came into Lagos. But, what happened once Yemi got into Lagos? Remember that I did my first degree and I made it to one? Yes. It offered opportunities for me to write tests of good organizations in Lagos once I arrived in Lagos. Okay. I was staying with a cousin I was staying with a cousin of mine. Um good opportunity. So I, I wrote GTB, Intercontinental Bank. I think I even wrote PricewaterhouseCoopers because every time I submitted my CV and they saw it two one, you know what I mean? They would invite yeah, me for yeah. the test. I wrote I wrote Athrondesay, now KPMG. I wrote um Zenith. I wrote all the banks, some banks that I can't remember their names, some of them are now moribund. Um, but I was writing tests and I didn't give up. After some tests I passed, 
went for the interviews, didn't make for the interviews. Some tests I didn't pass and all that. But I didn't give up. Between 95, I must have done up to like 10, 15 tests. I was just writing those aptitude tests. Because again, remember, I I was all your on my own. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true, true. So now, fast forward to early 96. 96, I saw um, an advert on the pages of newspapers by AT&T Global Information Systems of, uh, of the US. They were looking for sales executives. And they wanted a 2-1, age 26 or, or younger. I applied. I was shortlisted. Went for the interviews. And that's how I got the job. I think about 40 of us started that journey in the morning at about 6.30, the day of the interview, by five or by seven in the evening, about five of us were successful up to that stage. Various stages of the interview. Took a whole day. Almost like what you could call an assessment center. A couple of us were successful. A couple of weeks later, I got an offer from them. And I was seconded to a company called TMG Systems and Lines Limited. And that was how I started my first job as a sales executive. So you could see that there was no, like I said, there was no planned career career path. I wanted to be a banker or a accountant. No, I just wanted to be successful. So that yeah. was what life offered me first, to be a sales executive. And what I did basically was to sell computers to individuals and SMEs on the streets of Lagos and also some corporate organizations. I learned a bit more than just selling. I learned networking, putting cables together. When we got jobs, we also um, we also requested to do some implementation of the system integration and all that. I remember climbing roofs to get cables at UAC. Um, got some deal with UAC. Um, we're linking laptops to the server. In those in those years, the server was bigger, massive. <laughs> it has its own room. You know, with the ACs and all that. But that was that was in '96 now. But that was my first job. And I did it and I loved it. I gave my best to it until I became restless. I was looking for the next thing. After about a year, I was looking for the next opportunity. So all along my career, I've been kind of restless. And I think I'm on my eleventh job right now. So, yes, I've been the way the way I describe myself is that I've been nomadic with my career. I've been I've been a real nomad, honestly. So, but hey, no regrets at all. Absolutely no regrets. So, how were you able to transition from sales, your first job, into HR? I did transit from sales to HR. I transited to a company called Tequila, Tequila Nigeria, a direct marketing and ex an experiential marketing company. Again, adverts on the pages of newspapers, late 96 or early 97, I applied. Again, 2-1, looking for um, client service executive, client service managers. I applied for the client service executive role, went through the process. The business was founded by a guy, a great guy called George Thorpe, one of the best guys I've worked with so far. Uh, went through the interviews, and by February of 1997, I joined Tequila as a client sales executive, and we did we did some work, we did some good work around around the market. We were doing sats and jazz in those years. We were doing Rodman's of Paul Mall, what we call Rodman's Rodman's Groove. We took Rodman's around about nineteen about nineteen um, nineteen states in Nigeria, and we were, we were promoting brands using music. We took. Two-Face and the Plantation Boys around in those years, 19, was that be 98? 97, 98, we took them around to support the brand. Um, great stuff, great stuff. Three years of direct marketing and I had fun. Okay. I had fun. Yeah. And then after that, okay, started becoming restless. <laughs> By the third year, and shared my CV with somebody. The particular job was actually, I think, till today, the last job I applied for. Every other till now has been through referrals or some sort of mention. 
So okay. shared my CV with a cousin of mine. Again, one of the Oluwais, one of my first cousins, Benga Oluwe, uh, credits to him. Shared my CV with him. He shared it with somebody at Antwana Sin Rolly Pogosin. Um, the role was was pseudo HR, not HR per se, pseudo HR, some sort of HR admin or HR, like I don't even want to say it was HR officials. What we were doing then was to help clients settle into the country administratively. Clients of Arthur Anderson, when they came into the country, they would need space to work, they would need accommodation, they would need visas, they would need some sort of sectarian help and all that. So our job was to help them settle into the country. And when my CV was shared with Rolly, I had not done anything HR or pseudo HR or admin before. She looked at my CV and invited me. I went through the process and I got a job. So I have made a post about Rolly Pogosin before. She was one individual who gave me a chance. Yeah, I she saw paid the it forward for me. She really paid it forward by taking a chance on me. And I mean, it's a gesture that will remain with me for life. Um, I really wish I could see her again someday soon and just, and just say thank you. But I have, I have acknowledged her both on Facebook and on LinkedIn to say that, yeah, if anybody paid life forward for me, it was probably progressive. So I joined that department. Um, we called it Anderson Business Support. But I didn't spend more than six months there before she became death. The then country managing partner called me after six months one day and said um, there was an opportunity at executive selection and training. That was another department that we were going to kick off because clients were saying, hey, when we come into Nigeria, we also want you to recruit for us. You know what I mean? And they were not just going to be administrative or junior roles. I mean, we want you to actually do help us get um, the workforce to put together for the organization. So she positioned that department with me and asked if I wanted to join. I'm like, oh, sure, why not? That was how I moved into the HR space at Athrenosing, starting with executive selection and training. So Yemi did three years at Arthur Anderson. From there, he left to join Vic Lawrence and Associates, an HR consulting outfit where he spent 10 months. Now, this move certainly wasn't an easy one. Moving from an organization that was in maybe maybe about 28 countries or more, that talking about Athrenosing, with a workforce then, maybe at about, I think, was it 78,000 or 7,800? I can't remember precisely. To go into an organization where it was a workforce of two. Uh, it was just okay. Moabudu and I. Okay, maybe, maybe she had a PA at that time. Okay. It was just the two of us, right? So you can imagine that it wasn't going to be an easy decision. Because again, if people thought, what's going on with you? You've got a great career going on with Athrenosin. Why do you want to go into an unknown, seemingly unknown um, organization? And I wouldn't say it was fair of the unknown, but again, it just sounded stupid, you know, if you know what I mean. Not too many people make such career moves. But hey, I mean, that was something I was looking for. This Again, this job was through referrals. I didn't apply. It was, it was somebody who said, hey, um, venture capitalists were investing in the business, Vic Lawrence, about 100 million naira then in 2002. And therefore, the owners, you know, I mean, the venture capitalists were going to become owners as well. They were looking for somebody to work with um, Moabudu to take the business to the next level. That was how he was positioned with me. And I, okay, why not? Let's see. You remember uh, Nomadic, take risks. I just said, yeah. Let's try this <laughs> it was it was risky. It was it was a risk. It was a risky move, but no doubt that again, I don't have any regrets. We always will learn from one experience um, and another. And so, what did you yeah, learn I, from it? What did I learn from it? Yeah, okay, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So, sometime, um, sometime in the course of the year. I was at my desk in the office, and then um, Mo came to me and said, I mean, I mean okay, we, we are doing HR consulting and all that, but if we're not getting training and consulting, what else can we do? I should think about it. And a couple of hours later, 
something just, an idea just hit me. And I said, let's do voice it. 2002 was a year, or 2001 was a year DSF started in Nigeria when MTM came, followed by V-Mobile. And I said, nobody had, at that time, gotten feedback from consumers about their experience with GSM. Why can't we approach MTN and say, let's try and get a voice of customer and get feedback from them in terms of their experience across the country? Interesting. So I said, let's do, I said, let's do voice it. As in voice your opinion, voice your feedback. Yeah, got it. She was excited. She was excited. We took the idea to MTN. MTN was switched on immediately. Our office became a call center. They provided phones. We got um, undergraduates and, and maybe youth couples. We got them together. And we got the database of subscribers from MTN. And we were calling their customers to get them feedback. We made good money. And it was a novel idea. So if one could leave that behind, I mean, no regret at all. Absolutely no regret. I mean, see, when we're pitching for when we're pitching for jobs, the modus operandi was more carrying the laptop, Yemi carrying the projector. <coughs> that was Victorious. <coughs> Before we started adding other people later. So it was fun. It was fun to learn from a small organization and how things were done. At Athronesin, I made pitches as well, but I didn't make many pitches. I was executing, basically. I was more executing. But oh, at, okay. at, um, at Victorious, I was close to business development and to, to some extent, business management. Okay, okay. You see what I mean? So yeah. that led me into a kind of leadership position kind of in, um, in that organization. So no regrets at all. From there, Yemi joined Startup Chartered Bank in October 2002 as a resource manager, and it was there he made a lateral move into a sales function. So 2002, I joined Standard Chartered. Then sometime in 2005, yeah, yes, 2005, as a, as a resourcing manager for Standard Chartered, I advertised a role, sales manager on secured lending in the organization. We need to fill that role. I advertised it the first time nobody responded in the entire bank. I advertised it the second time nobody responded to the advert, internal advert, the second time. And the grade of the role was exactly the grade I was on at that time, manager. So it wasn't a promotion in any way. But you know what I did? I walked up to my boss and I said I was ready to do the job. From HR to sales manager on secure lending. My boss then, uh, uh, not really, uh, Isioma Ogudazi, was like, sure, why not? She agreed, and I went to do that role for one year. Regrets, why did you decide after. to take up the role? Because, I mean, remember that I started in sales. Yeah, so you missed it. That's one. Uh, I mean, okay, let me, tell you, let me tell you one of the one of the real motivations to take on that role. Apart from the fact that I had sold before, it was a role that was going to be based on relationships, one, and two, it was a great product. The product was targeted at individuals in certain organizations, pre-qualified organizations. All you needed to do was to come to Standard Chartered, or we would even come to you and tell you that a loan is available because you work in a certain organization. No collateral, nothing. But because you work at, for instance, MTN, you have access to that loan. And all I needed to do was to have an arrangement with the HR of MTN, for instance, so that you will open an account with me and I can remit my uh, monthly payment from your salary into my portfolio. Easy peasy, if you ask me. So I was quite surprised that nobody in the organization was interested. I saw it as a novel product in the market. Nobody had done it. I mean, so many banks are doing it right now on secure lending, but no one had done it. As of 2005, it was brought into the market by Standard Chatter. And I'm like, why are people running away from such a product? I mean, yeah, it might not be easy sell, but I think the product will sell itself in the market. And that was the reason I said, oh, hey, let's do this. Why not? And absolutely no regret. I was actually happy I took that decision. Most of the relationships I have built, right, over the years stemmed 
from that particular one year as sales manager on Secure Learning because I was approaching different organizations to say this product is available. I made loads of uh, friends and acquaintances at uh, V-Mobile, MTN, Mobile, some at Shell, because we pre-qualified those organizations that were that were in sync <laughs> with the realities of lending and borrowing, if you know what I mean. It wasn't just for anybody. But I built really, I remember that at V-Mobile, we sold loans worth about 300 million in maybe six weeks because it just looked like the market was waiting for this product. You know what I mean? Yeah, it did. Honestly, it, the market was waiting for it and we just bombarded. I, I still have great friends that I made in those years till today based on that experience. After that, from Standard Chartered, again, I was approached by another um, owner money business at People at People Temp. Uh, Yemi, I want to take my business to the next level. Do you want to work with me? This was Nick D'Souza at People Temp. At that point, I was actually looking out of Standard Chartered. I was already looking out. Again, restless okay. and all that. And it came timely. 2006, about early 2006. I'm like, okay, sure, let's do it. Why not? The office was going to be at the Kenya. Ah, maybe I need to take a break from coming from Kenya to the island. I'll just move from Omole to Isaac John at Jerry. Not bad. I mean, maybe it will give me more time for family. I just had my my first daughter at that time. I'll be able to drop her in school. Her school was at Jerry, and then I'll be able to also make make the office. I know that. So it was, it was good. I, it, it, it's, I've not at any point in time till today actually moved into a job because of money. There have always been other considerations, sincerely. Always been other considerations. People temp was one year. After a year, people temp, I joined Stambic IBTC. Stambic IBTC as head of HR. I was a senior consultant, again, helping Nikkei to manage the business at people and then got a call one day for an opportunity at Stambik. It wasn't Stambik IBTC then. The merger had not happened. It was Stambik. It was Stambik Nigeria, Stambik Bank. Um, joined them as head of HR. So this was your we, first head of HR job? Absolutely. Like how it was, was the experience? Mm, it was fun. It was fun. But I was, um, after a while, sometime in the course of the job, I was a bit politically naive, and um, yeah, the phone stopped. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I want to talk about it. No, no, no. It's, okay, so this is what I say, that as we go along the journey of career, right? At the beginning, your IQ will be very important, and IQ speaks to what you can do technically, your technical competence, ability to deliver on the job, Right? But as you grow up the ladder, you will need to do more than just that. You need EQ. You need emotional intelligence. You need to know how to work with people, get results through people, and all of that. Again, as you continue, especially when you now go into leadership position, your PQ must be added to your EQ. And that's what I call political quotient. And political quotient simply is your ability to understand the environment, the organization you work in, and the different, um, the different, the different individuals you are working with, also at the leadership level, understanding that space could make or break anyone. And I'm not saying that people should play politics, but what I'm saying is that we need to be more politically aware when we are getting into leadership positions. Was I that politically aware? I don't think so. Did it did it ultimately affect my my fund stopping in that organization, something like that. So, how was Yemi politically unaware and how did it cost him his job at Stambik? What are some of the mistakes Yemi made and key lessons he's learned in the course of his career journey? Find out next week on Origins Africa podcast. Thank you for listening to our show this week. If you liked it, do leave us a review, a comment and share with your friends. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend and to tell another friend. 
we would also love to read from you. So please, do send us a tweet or leave a comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, do subscribe at wherever you get your podcast. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, amongst others. Our sound producer this week was Tumisha Jani, and the theme song was composed by Just Ritimi. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa podcast. Bye for now. My father told me life is not a bit of roses. You gotta put your way to the